0: suppose if we're, if we're in a slightly more intimate group, we can also discuss a little bit and talk a little bit, and um, please feel free to, to jump in. Um, I think that, that um, the group that I want to talk about this morning, Gushamunim, have, uh, have you heard of Gushamunim? You know is? Yeah? yeah? Okay. I've heard the term, but I don't really remember what it is. Well, you will know what it is when okay. I translate it. You'll know exactly what it is, because Gushamunim is basically the hardcore ideological movement of, of religious Zionism. It's the high, hardcore ideological movement of religious Zionism. Um, they are essentially the, um, the ideological voice of, of the settler movement. Um, after the, after the, the victory in the Six-Day War in 1967, which I'm sure none of you remember because none of you were born... Um, <laughs> You don't remember come on, you don't remember it. Yeah. You don't do. remember it, I don't believe I don't you. Well, I wasn't born anyway, so I don't remember it. But after, 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 the, after the, the victory in, in 1967, first of all, there was this tremendous feeling um, before the war in 1967, which I'm sure you do remember. Um, I've only heard stories. But um, Israeli society really believed that the state of Israel was going to be destroyed. And there, was, there was this tremendous existential fear if everybody ganged up on Israel, we would be, we would be completely wiped out. There was, there was a, real, a real fear. Um, and of course, the victory was so overwhelming, and was so fast uh, that the, the, the transition, the transition during the course of six days from, from existential fear to total euphoria, um, was, was, was absolutely, absolutely overwhelming. And in many ways, Israeli society hasn't recovered or is in the very gradual and painful process of recovering from that euphoria ever since. It was just this, this tremendous experience of, 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 we can do anything, we can do everything. You know, throw, throw whatever you've got at us, we can handle it. Of course, it crashed very miserably in the 1973 war. Um, but, but there was this tremendous, tremendous sense um, of euphoria, which, uh, which uh, really sent Israel on sent Israel a little bit of a spin. Um, but of course, in addition to the incredible power of the victory uh, and the euphoria that came with the victory, the Six-Day War brought um, the people of Israel back geographically to the, the, the pieces of land, that were most powerfully associated with the biblical narratives, so places like Bet El, right, and Hebron, right, Judea and Samaria, not so much Gaza, but to an extent, um, also not so much the Golan Heights. I mean, there was quite a lot of t- territorial conquest, right, but, but specifically Judea and Samaria, Yehuda Shomron, the area, the area which is basically um, referred to as the West Bank of the Jordan. Is the area that when you, when you walk around it, when you wander around it, you really get um, a very powerful feel of the biblical, and there are there are there are um, Arab villages, uh, hundreds of them, that have preserved biblical names in the Arabic, and there's just this this very very strong and powerful feeling that that, that there's a, a a return to to a biblical authenticity of, of settling settling the land of Israel. That was of course piqued more than anything else by by the remarkable circumstances of the conquest of Jerusalem. Right? Not only was Jerusalem Reunited in inverted commas, and the biblical verses of Yerushalayim, right? dav. You know, the city that is that is always held together and is, is unity. These are very important classical symbols that are associated with Jerusalem, but they surfaced as 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 a contemporary as a contemporary as part of the contemporary discourse. By the way, while Barak was making his concessions in 2000 in in Camp David, you know, this image of the United Jerusalem. He was he was absolutely playing on all of that language um, and trying to insist that even though there would be territorial compromise in the areas around Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem itself was the eternal capital of the Jewish people, etc., etc. That language, that discourse really, really surfaced and became very, very powerful. After the, after the Six Day War, the images of, of maybe you remember this: visiting the city of Jerusalem and standing on Mount Zion, right, which was the closest you could get to the Old City, and looking over. Right, my mother-in-law always tells the story of how she would, was taken as a child up to Mount up to Mount Zion, and they and they stood on the top of Dormition Abbey, the Dormition Abbey. Um, this beautiful, beautiful uh, church, and from there you have this this view of the old city. Today, when you're standing up there, you can see the hotel, you can see the Western Wall. In those days, there were buildings all over the old city, and you couldn't you couldn't see now. The, the Western Wall Plaza is opened up. Right. Everybody here has been right. There's nobody who hasn't. So okay. So the Western Wall Plaza has opened up, and you can see it. But there was a whole there was a whole neighbourhood that was built in the Mamluk period that blocked out the Western Wall and made it made it made it impossible to see. And she has these memories of jumping up and down and saying, "I can see the Kotel. I can see the Kotel." But of course, you couldn't. So this kind of yearning for um, the sacred sites, uh, which was which was very very powerful. Um, reversed in, overnight into an experience of total, of total fulfillment. Um, there's the famous image of the chief rabbi of the Israeli army, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, right, turning up at the Western Wall with his shofar. And blowing, blowing the shofar. I'm sure you've all seen this footage. Blowing the shofar. And walking in, you see Moshe Dayan and Yitzhak Rabin. Right, you see them. You see them walking in together with Levi Ashkol and coming up to the, coming up to the, coming up to the wall and the soldiers falling on the wall. And this incredible. Radio broadcast of Har bi right? The Holy Mount is in our hands. What actually happened, for reasons that are freakish and really, really difficult to understand, as the as the Israeli paratroopers were assaulting the Old City, there was terrible, terrible confusion in the Jordan High Command. And, and as they were moving in, the Jordanian legions were withdrawing and pulling out from the back because they thought they were they would, they would be able to launch a counterattack the other way. And what ultimately happened was that the Israeli army, almost without opposition, there was one very, very difficult stretch but apart from that, almost without opposition they just whew, washed through the old city and reclaimed, reclaimed the Temple Mount and reclaimed the Western Wall and this created, as you can imagine a tremendous messianic fervor Tremendous messianic fervor. People believed that the end of the world was nigh. Right? It was actually happening. It was it was upon us. It was only a matter of of moments until until the Messiah popped out from out of the skies, dropped the temple down on top of the Temple Mount, and 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 some you know deep and profound religious fantasy would be would be fulfilled. Um, it's in the wake of this euphoric messianism that Israeli society started the debate that has more or less been ripping it apart for the last 30, 43 years. right? And the debate boils down very technically to what are we supposed to do with all this land that's been conquered and what are we supposed to do with all of these people who are living on this land that's been conquered because there was a huge civilian population. And while there were early... Early radicals like Ishayahu Leibovitch, who called out very clearly that we should stand up, be grateful to God for having returned for having had this land returned to our hands, celebrate that it's ours, and give it back the next day. Right? That was basically what, what people like Leibovitch were speaking. They were a very, very, very small proportion of Israeli society. There were um, there was a majority voice that saw this land as a a bargaining chip right some some kind of a, a bargaining chip that we could use in order to negotiate a peace agreement further down the line the land that that we have we will we will be able to return and when that opportunity presents itself so so that will be you know that will be our our way of of cutting a deal and when this kind of discourse surfaced the the religious zionist messianic voice started to, started to become much, much, much stronger, much, much more powerful. And they developed an agenda that has dominated the vast majority of, of the thinkers in the religious Zionist movement ever since. Um, You can find it, by the way, in religious Zionism in America when you encounter youth movements and organizations such as B'nai Akiva and so on and so forth. But the most significant organization that really came together, and it didn't really take any kind of political form until after the Yom Kippur War, was the organization called Gush Emunim. And Gush Emunim was basically a group of people who said, if this miraculous Celebration of the return of the Jewish people to the strips of land in the West Bank that are of biblical, that are of such biblical significance, is being appreciated by the vast majority of Israeli society as a bargaining chip for some kind of a for some kind of a, a, a political deal. Then they're totally missing the point. It's like there is clear open, divine revelation in front of us here. And this stuff is not is not the stuff that bargaining chips are made of. And the argument was that, that in order to prevent any kind of, of, of compromise on this sacred land that God has given back to the Jewish people in this miraculous war, I'll just add in brackets before I finish that sentence, that there is a day, the day of the end of the of the of the Six Day War, is celebrated in Israel. It's called Yom Yul Shalayim. I don't know if it's a day that is celebrated um, in America at all. Uh, but Yom Yul Shalayim is the, is the day that commemorates the conquest of Jerusalem in the Six Day War. At, for a while, it was, a, it was really a national holiday. Today, it's officially a national holiday. And for a while, it really was a national holiday that people celebrated together, and it was the victory of the Six-Day War. You can imagine that as time has gone by and the political debate has become so controversial, so there's a whole bunch of people who feel quite ambigu- ambiguous and ambivalent about it, and it's a day that's kind of lost its luster. Who celebrates Yom Yerushalayim? Jerusalem school kids. Uh, because the Jerusalem municipality makes a little bit more of a deal of Yom Yerushalayim than any of the others, right? But it's a national holiday of tremendous power in the religious Zionist camp. Just to give you a sense, there are people who who value Yom Yerushalayim above Yom HaTzmaut. Yom HaTzmaut was a declaration of the State of Israel. Lovely, great, brilliant, super. But returning to the Temple Mount holding on to the Temple Mount, returning to these sacred sites, returning to the biblical Israel, that was, that that goes way beyond. I mean, that's direct, mystical, messianic, divine revelation. And that is the day. And it's a holiday. People dress up in in Yom Tov clothes. Um, They um, say Hallel in the services like you would on Sukkot or on Pesach. They say a full Hallel both in the evening and in the morning, which is absolutely unheard of. There's virtually no festivals where you do that. You do it on the first night of Pesach. Right? And and there are certain streams in the Rabbanut that do it on, on Yom HaTzma'ut as well. They do it on Yom Yerushalayim. It's, it's really, just in terms of the liturgy, a very dramatic statement of you know response to something super powerful. Um, and they celebrate this day also with a huge 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 parade it's fabulous to see by the way but it's a huge parade um, that goes through the center of the old, that goes through the center of the modern city of jerusalem and cuts its way all the way into the old city and and um actually runs quite provocatively and unpleasantly through the through the arab market and it, it's there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of unpleasantness that goes on there but they make their way to the to the plaza of the of the western wall and there's a lot of singing and dancing and it's a, it's a huge 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 celebration and very very often not infrequently let's put it there are Jewish groups who, who, who use this day to um, to go up onto the Temple Mount and uh, that's a big deal you've got to dunk yourself in the mikvah and you, I mean there's all sorts of things that you have to do in order to prepare yourself for that you've got to shave off your fingernails I mean it's really a big deal to go up onto the Temple Mount for these people and they purify themselves and go up onto the Temple Mount and that's obviously um, very provocative and it creates all sorts of reactions and it's Problematic, but they go up onto the Temple Mount, and it's, and it's a hugely significant um, messianic religious experience for them. Okay, so this is the ideology of Gushemonim, and their, 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 their major decision, and this is the thing that they're most famous for. And it's why I would say that they're one of the most important political movements in, in Israel, and perhaps um, one of the movements that has defined the political context in which we live even on an international level, the implications are huge, is that they said it's inconceivable to think of the land of Israel as a bargaining chip in a peace agreement. It's the sacred land. We've returned to the sacred land. I'm now finishing off that sentence that I cut off about four or five minutes ago. So what we are going to do is settle that land. And we're going to make it impossible to bargain with this land because there will be Jewish settlement all over it. We're going we're to build a Jewish population that will settle that land. Now it's very, very important to make this completely clear. The Israeli government was right behind them all the time. So the talk about bargaining chip was there. The government funds were, were 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 channeled into this organization so as they would be able to settle the land. The first settlement, it's very famous, the train station in Sebastia. They a bunch of people. They just they just settled there and they stuck there and it was illegal and they held on, um, and they were eventually pulled out and they had to go back and there were there were, and this is in Samaria and and this mushroomed into into a phenomenon that has given birth to what we now know of as as the settlement the settlers movement, um, and there are hundreds of settlements, and they range from large cities which are extensions of Jerusalem um, to almost suburban um, settler towns, which are basically. Um, don't to be derisive about it, but it's not. It's not necessarily hardcore ideological. It's people who are looking for cheap land, big houses, um, fifteen twenty minutes from Tel Aviv, and they can. Like my brother, by the way, and they can. They can go and work in their high tech companies in Tel Aviv and Ranana, and live and and live in these settlements where the quality of life is is phenomenal. Um, the scenery is breathtaking. I know you people live in paradise, but, but. But the, scen- the scenery is absolutely breathtaking. No, no sea over there. It's rocky mountains and, and, and beautiful, beautiful flora and fauna. It's just breathtaking. It's beautiful. Beautiful piece of land to settle on. Complicated, but beautiful. Um, even within those kinds of settlements, there's an ideological hardcore. There is an ideological hardcore. But when you go further into places like Chevron and places, I'm, I mean, I can throw out names of places like Faltapuach and Yitzhar and Itamar and Bracha. I mean, there's all sorts of settlements which are really rugged edges out in the middle of nowhere on the top of a hill um, with one road leading through leading through a bunch of Arab villages until they finally, you know, when you finally find yourself going through this gate, you're back in Israel. It's this weird feeling of these, of these, of these, these Israeli outposts. Um, this is the outcome of, of the work of Gushemuni. This is Gushemunin. Um The um, overwhelming majority, it's not exclusive, but the overwhelming majority of the settlers' movement are, are religious Zionists. They're religious Zionists. And when we think about them, we think of them, excuse me, as the primary obstacle to peace, right? They are. So often understood as the primary obstacle That's to peace. Yes. How many in total? total 700,000. So the population base of what? Israel. What's the percentage of the society? 7 million? Yeah, so. and then, yeah. 7 million? No, 7 million population of Israel. Oh. And, and how many of them are Americans? Are That's a very, very interesting question. Yeah. I, I can I can say I can give you I can't give you a statistical answer. You could probably find that out in Google much quicker than you could get it from me. But I can tell you there is a strikingly high um, proportion of of Americans um, from, the beginning? from the beginning, from the very beginning. Well, the people I mean I think of some of the some of the leaders of this of this movement. I mean the, the two that really stand out from the you know the 70s are, are Chaim Levinger and uh, Merkahana, both of whom were Americans. Um, and, and if you go to a place like Kvartapuach, which is generally considered, I mean, it's really, it's really the, 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 the forgive the pun, Tapuach means an apple, but it's really the core of, of, of the ideological, you know, the ideological extreme. Um, Kvartapuach is about 30% American. That's really striking. I spent a month there a couple of years ago doing, doing miluim, um, i was on reserve duty and we weren't we weren't we were just based there our base was in in the compounds of the shuv and we and our job was was patrolling in in, in, in nablus in schem but um, the number of people who came over to us and you know they're offering cakes and biscuits there and they've got you know these heavy american accents it really really stands out it really stands out so I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it's all about. Um, but there seems to be an ideological aliyah from America that, that that really is aligned, um, really is aligned with this ideology. And they're the people who we who we see as the hardcore, the people who we see as the fundamental obstacle to peace in the Middle East. Um, they're the people who are the hardest to break into. They're the hardest to talk to. Um, I suppose they came very, very powerfully under siege and under scrutiny when somebody like Yigal Amir. Right, who assassinated Rabin was ideologically associated with the, the extreme right wing um, within the uh, within within Gushemunim. Um, But I'm going to suggest that Gush are were actually motivated by peace. Um, <laughs> that they're actually motivated by peace. Um, I want to. I, I can't argue this as a political reality. Because it isn't. They are militant. They are violent. Um, the people who burn down the olive, bu- the olive trees, um, the people who, who, drive, who drive provocatively through to Palestinian villages, the people who build settlements, the people who settle illegally on hilltops, um, set up these caravans, um, I'm going to argue that, that we can, A, we can articulate their vision for Zionism as a vision that is, that is connected to peace, deeply. And B, that we can talk to them, we can reach them, we can negotiate with them, we can deal with them. Um, they're not fanatical, fundamentalist, mad people. Um, and that's hard sell. That's a really, really hard sell. I spent, I spent the vast majority of my adult life as a religious Jew in Israel... Um, differentiating between them and myself. I remember the day after Rabin was assassinated, I got up in the morning to go to shul. I told you this story before, I got up in the morning to go to shul the day after Rabin was assassinated. And for the first time in my life, walking through the streets of Israel, I took off my kippah and I put it in my pocket. Um, it was it was just, that, just the exact opposite of you know, you know the story of why I moved to Israel. I moved to Israel because I had my head kicked in because I was wearing a kippah. And the whole point was to be in Israel and to be able to wear it proud. Um, and I was going to shul, and, and I felt I oh God, I don't want people I don't want people to see me and think that I'm one of them. Um, and there was a very it was a very strong um, sense of of trying to create a differentiation between you know the sane normal religious Zionists who want to live in peace with the rest of the world and the and the mad people who are. But what I've discovered are two things. First of all, practically speaking, I don't think we can we can talk about peace in the Middle East without getting them on board. If they are the enemy, they have tremendous, tremendous political swing. They have incredible determination. They have incredible, incredible organization. Their school system, their 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 yeshiva system, um, is is is. is Incredibly effective. They are growing, they are they are winning in tr- tremendous ideological support. They have a voice of authenticity. They look like pioneers. They love the land. Um, in the last ten or fifteen years, this is really cool. But people outside of Israel don't know this. But they've started producing films and songs and CDs. And there's even settler hip hop music. And it's unbelievable. Um, and people are listening to their music. And people because it's good. It's really good. People are listening. To their music and they're reading their books and there 's poetry and and it 's romantic poetry it 's beautiful you know this 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 love for the land has has a tremendous appeal this 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 sort of authentic you know when you think of these mad mad settlers on the hilltops you know they don 't spend their days you know shooting people they actually spend their days with sheep and, and doing organic farming. I mean, they are the environmentalists in Israel. The green camp in Israel is not so much on the left, which is kind of yuppie, as it is on the ideological right, which is connected very powerfully to to the land of Israel. Lots of them are vegetarians. There is a, there is a real sort of messia- messianic um, um, reconnection with the land that in many ways is, is very gentle and very appealing um, and feels very, very authentic. Can you just imagine these fellows sitting up on the hilltops playing, their, playing their, their flutes and looking at the sheep? And, of course, there's nothing pastoral about it when you put it back into its political context, but, but, but the, the ideological appeal of, of this group is growing. Um, and they are, they are—they have something very, very beautiful. Their societies are built in a very, very beautiful way. And the question is, how, how do we think about them? How do we understand them? Who are they and what's it all about? Um, Brian, did you want to ask a question before I jump into the substance? In yeah. the hills surrounding Jerusalem, there are some communities that are all orthodox, you know, and there's, no road, and there's no traffic on Shabbos and stuff like that. Is, yeah. Are those separate communities? Okay. I'm not sure what you're talking about. There are places that are settlements, so there are places, places that aren't. Like you just take a bus to there, like these Ofra, Bet El, yeah. Shvut Rachel, yes, yes, these are the settler's communities. The, 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 the road Kvishishim, the road 60, it, goes, it cuts across Judea into Samaria and basically goes all the way to Nablus. And there are settlements every, every, every five, ten miles. Some of them are beautiful, by the way, and the, the, the communal life and the quality of life, these are really happy people, and they've got all kinds of statistics that they, that they can boast about You know, the low incidence of cancer and the low incidence of this and the low incidence of that. They have very, they, there's, there's something very organic about, about, about the way in which these people live, even though they are politically, don't, don't confuse this. They're hardcore, radical right wing, politically. That's where they're at. Yes. Are they technologically savvy? Is, do they get cable TV? Access to internet, or do they keep those things out? They all of the materials that I'm, the current materials, is stuff that I downloaded from the internet. They have very, very vibrant and interesting websites. Um, there, there is they. Many, many of them are, are high tech, uh, working in high tech, and they commute. They can commute very easily to the high tech center, which is basically in Ranana, right? From so, from Samaria to Ranana is a twenty minute drive. Um, and um, yes, yes, they're also very, very involved in issues of their own security. So they control their own their own operations. So there are there are there are there are kind of operations rooms, and they've got satellite cameras. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, don't think of people. They're not yokels. They're not. Um, they're not well, the outside kids, of they're tech- not religiously themselves like other they're kids. not ultra orthodox they're not ultra orthodox they look like you Andy? right now yeah that <laughs> that kind of shirt that kind of kippah you've got the look <laughs> American. you've got the look yeah. you've got the look um, they no uh, these are not i don't Im- don't have an image of black coats and black hats and, and and curly peyotes that's not what we're talking about it's not what we're talking about yes yeah, go ahead. Could you translate Gush It means the, the block of the faithful. Right? Gush is a block or a or a lump or a clump. Um and emunah, which is which is which is belief, emunim are are, are, are the faithful, right? <coughs> Those the ones that can be relied upon. Neemanim. Right. So what I want what I want to do is is to use the time that's left. Um to, to look at some of the, look at some of the, the discourse um, that, that this movement is, is motivated by. And I'd like to focus on, on three generations of its leadership, three generations of its leadership. I know that you've heard me speak about the first generation a little bit. I'm not going to talk at length. I want to say one or two things about this first generation. Then I want to move on to the second generation and then, and then on to the third. The first generation is one individual, and it's Ruff Cook. Right, Rav Cook, who's clearly the founding ideological figure that gets this thing off the ground. Right, But what happens, and this is the way in which most of the scholarship, um, there's a lot of scholarship on this. Most of the scholarship sees Rav Cook as, as this vast, broadly thinking mystic um, whose, whose ideology put a tremendous emphasis on, on the spiritual significance of the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Um but he was operating outside of a political context because the actual establishment of the state didn't take place during the course of his life. Um and, and Rav Cook uh is he's generally seen as somebody who perhaps it's difficult, but who perhaps would have responded differently to the 1967 victory, and would have been more and would have been more more ready to, to think in different terms, to think in more compromising terms. I think that's a mistake. I think Rav Cook would have been right where right where his his followers were, but the second generation is Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook, was Rav Cook's son, who inherited from him the helm of the, the institution that Rav Kook established. He, he established several, including the chief rabbinate, but he established a yeshiva in Jerusalem called Merkaz HaRav, right, which was the Rav Kook Center, which is still the flagship of Gushemunim And his son, Tzvi Yehuda Kook, um, inherited that, that institution. Um, and he um, is generally seen as the ideological leader who came up with Gushemunim He was the one who responded to the events of 1967 and said, go, go. Settle, grab onto this land. Hold onto every into, uh, onto every clump of earth that you can. Build houses wherever you can. Build yeshivot wherever you can. Build, 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 build. Right? These, by the way, not just in terms of technological savvy, they're very, very practical people. They are all, you know, very connected to building. They know about building and building materials and different types of concrete. And they, you know, they're really into this stuff. And they sanctify it. And they're all, you know, they know about plumbing. <laughs> it, it's unusual what unusual for Orthodox Jews? Oh yeah. Jews it's really striking. Absolutely true. But these guys, they they know about this stuff, and it's part of their religious ethos, right? Is to know about plumbing and to know about building and to know about irrigation, and they really do. In many ways, um, stir up associations with the Chalutzim of the twenties and thirties, um, because they're they're really into all of the all of the practicalities. You see these rabbis, and they've got hard hands and cut fingers because they're they're builders, and they, they really get involved in it themselves. Yes. Uh, on this theme, Yeah. I've always felt that like, just before the sixty-seven war, that Israel, you know, they had left its pioneering spirit mm-hmm. behind. And that these people... Reclaimed part, it. What was so attractive beyond the movement, you know, the religious uh, getting back to the biblical land was to become pioneers again. Absolutely. They reclaimed it, and and that's and a significant part of their appeal. Yeah, psychologically, this is a very empowering kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. We are the real chalutzim. We are the real chalutzim. It's very, very important. I said it once. I'll say it again. It's very, very, very important to remember that they operated within... The law. Um, you can argue about whether or not they operated within international law, but the Israeli government, even though it was it was giving this double message, um, and that's why the disengagement of two thousand and five was such a crisis because it was it was the Israeli government um, was playing this game. And don't think for a second, don't think for a second, that the that the left wing governments. Um, were were acting any differently from the Likud governments. The the largest period of, of growth in the settlement movement in terms of government funding, believe it or not, was in Rabin's term during the Oslo process, that's what was driving the Palestinians mad during the course of the Oslo process, was that, was that the investment in the settlements from the Israeli government was not being cut, it was being grown, it was being, it was being increased. Um, and you know, it's very important to recognize that they, they, they are working very much within the context of what they understand to be um, mainstream Zionism. And you'll see that come out when I start looking at some of these texts. But the second generation is, is really Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk and Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk is, un, is understood by, by the followers of this movement as the authentic voice that carried on the message of the father into the next generation. He's understood by the critics who want to idealize the father as the one who came along and polluted, adulterated, changed, destroyed the, the, uh, the uh, authentic sound of Rav Kuk's Rav Cook's thinking and turned it into something that was much more hard-line, less compromising, and and and, and politically uh, rugged and edgy. The third generation are the students of of um, Rav Tzvi Cook The students of Rav, of Rav Tzvi Cook today are in their seventies and eighties, all right, and they are still the upper the upper crust. Of the of the ideological movement of Gush Emunim, they're still active. They're still intellectually active. They're writing and they're teaching. Their children and their students are now, people in their 50s and their 60s, are now holding on to much, much more serious positions in, in, in the yeshivot. Right? The direct students of the students of Rav Tzvi Da Kuk, that next generation, these guys in their, in their 50s and 60s, those are the people I'm working with, for those of you who ever heard about my project. I'm working with the, with the fourth generation. Right, so you've got Rav Kuk, Rav Tzvi Yehuda, the students of Rav Tzvi Yehuda, and then the next generation of students after that, many of whom are the children. There are family lines here. So for example, the Rav Melamed that, that I've occasionally mentioned is the son of Zalman Melamed, who is today the Rosh Hashiva of Bet El. He's a man in his late 80s. He was the direct student of Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook. He was intimately close with him. So his oldest son is the Rav Melamed that I'm working with. So. I'm now. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get involved with what's going on in the generation that is now becoming um, very, very influential. But, but basically, the way the story is usually told is a story of a group that has become less and less compromising and become more and more um, fundamentalist. Um, And what I'd like to do is to suggest suggest a different way of looking at these people. Um, I don't think we've got any choice. If we don't learn to look at these people otherwise and to engage with them otherwise, we're never going to make any progress. And the thing that I find really encouraging and really striking is that while we think of their, their, their movement as a movement that is fundamentally designed to prevent a peace agreement in the Middle East, right, because land compromise is absolutely contrary to everything that they believe in and they, and they believe is sacred. right? And that is true. It's absolutely true. I don't want to deny it, I don't want to whitewash. While, while that is true, it's very important also to recognize that they believe that the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is designed in order to accomplish world peace. It's designed in order to accomplish world peace. So if you ask them questions like, How can you sacrifice life? How can you put how can you endanger this people who is so sacred to you? How can you endanger their security for a clump of land? Their answer is we genuinely believe that this is the path to world peace. And in that sense, they plug in very authentically and very interestingly to the non-political strand of Zionism that I've been talking about in this, in this series, right? Remember, we're doing a series here um, that started a couple of months ago and, and went on last uh, a couple of days ago, and now this is the third. But what they do, I think, is provide the right wing of a discourse that was very, very powerful in the 30s that Rav Cook participated in, a discourse in which the idea of the state of Israel was to improve on the model of what the state is. While Rav Cook didn't really write about Kant and Hegel, although he definitely read them, um, what is clear is that is that he's articulating a political philosophy that thinks of the state of Israel, the idea of the Jewish state, as a mechanism that is designed to bring peace to the world and to the Jewish people or to the world through the Jewish people. There's a very, very um, highly intensive particularism here, right? The, a sense of of the Jewish people having a unique role in history right which which makes the jewish people in terms of its spiritual entity something fundamentally different from the rest of the world and that's perhaps something that we're uncomfortable with in in certain senses in certain sensibilities but but his 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 take on this is that the jewish people is designed by god to serve the world and in serving the world they provide pe- peace for the world now what i want to claim is a little bit complicated. I've, I actually, with the assistance of my brother-in-law, who, is, who really follows their websites, and he did a whole, a whole bunch of downloads for me. I didn't translate them because these are from last week, right? This is, this is fresh off, this is fresh off the, the, the press. I mean, some of these texts are old texts, but the recent ones, are, are, are really coming out right now. Um, so I'm giving you an up-to-date sense of the discourse that's going on. These are from the websites, um, but. What I want to suggest is that while these people have a clear political message um, that has that has lost some of the scope and the horizons and the dimensions of Rov Cook's thinking, I want to claim that they are still they're still basically thinking along the same lines as Rov Cook the father. And that, that, that we need to have Rav Kook the Holy Ghost at some stage. So we've got the Father and the Son, and I always feel there's something missing. right? But we have—they're thinking along the same lines as Rav Kook the Father. I'd like to argue that Rav Kook the Son, even though most people see him as having totally um, strayed from the breadth of the message of the Father, Rav Kook the Son is still thinking in the same—the same—it's the same structure of thought. It's the same intellectual DNA. And that this has been passed over to the students as well. And as a result, there's some tremendous, tremendous potential for, for productive and important discourse with these people. So what I'd like to do is just to, to go through some of these texts with you. I'm, I, I have this party trick that I do, which is to look at a text in Hebrew and translate it simultaneously into English. Um, I, 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 I'm going to do that a little bit now. And I, I want to read out. I, I don't, it's any, is there any point for me reading anything out in Hebrew to anyone in the room? Does it mean anything to anyone? Because if so, then I, I will read out the Hebrew so as You can hear it. Ari, do you want to hear it in Hebrew as well? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Okay, so I'll do it in, in Hebrew, French, and then Latin, and then we'll do it in English to finish <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> well, Comus Deus. Know, what? Okay. La- the Hebrew sounds nice, and you can pick up words okay. that you're learning. All right. So, so I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you just just a little bit i want to I, i've got a whole set of clips here that come from rough cook a whole set that come from his son and then a set that comes from this third generation and i want to try and show you that you'll hear the message changing very very significantly but i want you to i want you to see What's, what's going on in the relationship. Yeah, I want to see the similarities and the consistencies and not just the changes. Everybody notices the changes. I want to show you some of the similarities. So, whoever said about me that my, heart, my, my soul is ripped, it's true. My soul is ripped. Whose soul is not ripped? There's no such person. Only something that is dead. Or, or, or um, abstract can be can be considered full and complete, but a person, a person has contradictory aspirations. His soul flows in two separate directions, and there's an internal war, war going on in his heart. And the whole function of human life is to hold together the contradictions inside the human soul and to become part of the general unity of the world, which, in his greatness, God created in complete harmony. This is an ideal that we aspire to. But to get there is not something that every person born of a mother can accomplish. Our role is to become closer and closer so that we may, so that me, we may become united. These are the teachings of Rav Cook. He says that the experience of paradox and contradiction is only the product of an inadequate, rational mind. If we were capable of seeing the world and feeling its contradictions, and recognizing that these contradictions unite and come together in a place that is above ourselves and in the O, the upper the upper divine divine light, then our possibilities will be unlimited, and we will no longer look for resolution, for decision, or for one side to win over the other. Our purpose is to walk the path of changing and of hashvaya. That's a little bit difficult. Hashvaya is, is um, equivalence, changing is like, and, and and coming together, and to and to work through our thinking in such a way that we can identify in every person his unique spirit, so that our people can be defined not by its similarities, but by the unities that cross its differences. Right? This is a theme that you've heard me talk about perhaps in, in the teaching of, of Rav Cook. One more from Rav Cook before I move on to his son. Two more. All of the different ideological and spiritual voices, listen to this, of the entire human world. Right? Let me read that in Hebrew so as you hear it The entire human world Each voice in the world has a representative Inside the spirit of the Jewish people Because in the special spiritual way In which God has created the Jewish people The Jewish people is the center of humanity Okay, so this is intense particularism, right? When we're talking about particularism, universalism, this is intense particularism. But because of this, this is the striking thing: it is impossible for us to ignore or to dismiss any stream or any voice or any position.. So what he's saying is when we're trying to decide what's the right path for the Jewish people to follow, his argument is not our path. His argument is that it is impossible for us to ignore any path that anybody is following in the Jewish world because each one of them represents something that belongs to the greater world. Then he goes on to say the most incredible thing. Yahi, it would be befitting for the humanity that it should unite in its entirety to one people and that would be the end of all hostilities and all evil forces that come from the distinctions between peoples, lands and nations. This is incredible, (laughs) right? Did you hear that? I mean, it sounds like a Greenpeace, um, but this is Rav Cook, And his argument is that because the Jewish people embodies all of this, then the Jewish people has a commitment to every voice that exists in the Jewish people. And through that, mediated through that, the Jewish people has a commitment to every voice that exists in the world. Now, what is... Critical is that this is only accessible to the Jewish people when they return to the land of Israel. Now you can ask me, till kingdom come, what the reason is for that. I've told you a little bit about some of the groups that we are facilitating, one of the questions that people on the left keep on asking the people on the right is, but why do we need to be in the land of Israel in order for that to happen? Why do we need to be in the land of Israel for that to happen? Why don't you just do that from Tel Aviv? Why do you need to do that from holding? And it's a, it's a serious political question, and I don't have a good answer. I can tell you that in Rav thinking, it's because this perspective, this, this expansive perspective, is connected to his understanding of what prophecy is all about. And prophecy, in his understanding, is connected to the land of Israel. Jewish prophecy is profoundly connected to the notion of the land of Israel. But this, this is this is this is Rav Kook. One last little thing from Rav Kook. He says we have left world politics. The Jewish people left world politics, out of we were forced to, but there is also a deep inner desire to have done so. Because we recognize, it's astonishing that he says this, that politics is itself impossible without evil and without barbarism. Right? That's the Hebrew for barbarism. Barbarit. man, zman sh'anu mikavim. This is the time where our soul and our spirit is sick of what is corrupt about the political sovereignty. And the time is coming where we will be able to enter back into the political sphere and bring to that and bring to our kingdom the foundations of good, wisdom, integrity, enlightenment, and the light of the clear presence of God. It's not worth it for Jacob to deal with kingdom, so he says, until it can be accomplished with the talent or with the special gift of being able to avoid the evil of corruption. This is Rav Cook. So, remember, he's writing before the foundation of the State of Israel. He's highly optimistic about the idea of the State of Israel offering an alternative politics to the world, a politics without corruption. Well, yeah, that's disappointing. A politics without violence. Well, yeah, that's disappointing. And a politics that is designed to allow the Jewish people to express its love and its connection with the entire world as a project of radical, international, familial, that's the metaphor that he uses, coexistence. Now, people don't know this about Cook. But what's really interesting is that his son says the same things. His son says the same things. However, there's a change. And it's very important to recognize the change. Rav Tzvi Cook, the son, is writing in the period after the Six-Day War. That's the prominent time of his, of his prolific writing. And it's absolutely clear that he is holding the same ideological position as his father. Absolutely clear. However, he's writing in a different political context. And in his political context, he feels that the world has disappointed the thinking of his father his feeling is that what we are trying to accomplish should be applauded by the world the world should be should recognize that this is what this is what this, this is what the state of israel is for the state of israel has come into existence in order to bring benefit to the rest of the world that's the thinking of the father but when he looks at his own political context He feels very, very bitterly disappointed And he feels disappointed on two fronts The first is the sense of the world not getting it The world not understanding what a blessing has happened to it With the foundation of the State of Israel What potential for international good Is, is embedded in this, new, in this new political existence Rav Tzvi Yehuda feels very feels very disappointed with this But the second thing that he feels, and it it gets harder and harder, I'm going to read some very, very difficult texts to you in the next five minutes. Difficult, not because they're difficult to understand. Difficult because they're difficult to stomach. But what starts to creep in in his writing is a sense of profound disappointment in secular Israeli society. That secular Israeli society does not appreciate and does not understand the breadth Of the vision that the religious Zionist camp has. So, secular Israeli society, this is an interesting switch. Secular Israeli society has become a self serving entity, right? The open minded, we love the world liberals, right, from his perspective, are a self serving entity. What they are looking for is quality of living, income economy etc it 's become a hedonistic self serving materialistic superficial society that imports all the bad stuff from america and doesn 't pick up the good stuff from america it 's a little bit overstated sometimes but it 's there we do have kosher mcdonald 's it's true it doesn 't taste particularly good by the way i 've never 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 been able to figure out what 's so good about it but but um but the the um, the disillusionment with, with the secular left is not a disillusionment that's simply rooted in, in, in their betraying the values of, of, of the sanctity of the land of Israel. What emerges from these texts is an inability on the part of the secular left to really understand the broad international significance of what the Zionist movement is trying to accomplish not just for the Jewish people but for the whole world so here you go, listen to this our feeling is that for many years we have been watching an absurd scene that is filled with cultural decadence Degeneration, hard words here, and gluttony. Hista'avut is gluttony. Misbaa uh, is a place where you've got to stuff yourself. It's like an eatery. Misbaa zolel vesuve. It says of the Ben Sorero Moret, if you're familiar with that phrase. Sove is you know stuffing your face, right? And this is what has become of secular Zionism. Those who support the idea of the Jewish state gave us jumping, um, flashing scenes at the bottom of our TV screens which explain movies and explain the movie of our history, right? He's playing with them. Explain the movie of our history as a story of redemption and correction. But gradually this movement has become a laughable Hollywood comedy that has replaced its genre of a high message with one of self-parody. Now it looks, as time unfolds, that their movie is becoming a macabre horror movie and um, he's talking about their subtitles. Their subtitles have stayed in the same place. They have given them the same interpretations, but the younger generation no longer knows how to watch the movie and see anything other than the popcorn that they leave on the floors of the cinema on the way out. Isn't that amazing? This is a, a different flavor from the writing of Rav Cook, right? But they walk out of the movie theater, and the teachings of an old spiritual generation are cast aside for every sin that can be committed against the teaching of the Torah. They have interpreted and missed the creativity. And the boldness of Rav Kuk, the father, who saw with such political clarity the meaning of our historical situation, and they have turned it into a new written law. The result is kibaon, which is stagnation, mental stagnation. Oh, he says, kibaon mentali vis Right? Right? mental stagnation and stagnatia tsiburit and public stagnation, they have lost their sense of vision. Now, this is a really, really, really striking observation, right? What he is saying here is that these are the leaders of Gush Emonim. The leaders of Gush Emonim are criticizing Israeli society for losing their sense of cultural depth They feel that they've been left behind. They're the only people who seem to be struggling for a society built on values, built on vision, built on ideological purpose. There is this historical move over of Cook the father who reached out his hand to these secular Jews and said, you have a vision. Let's be part of building this vision together. And while you are motivated by a passion for something, while you are motivated by, a, by a, a utopian dream of creating a better society and creating a better world, we don't care what your position is on Shabbat. We don't care what your position is on Kashrut. We don't care how you understand Judaism because you are motivated by something that is filled with energy. We want to join camps with you and be the religious counterpart to your effort to bring a vision to the world. And now what has happened is that that vision has become the subtitles in a movie that nobody bothers to read anymore. And the subtitles are dancing in the screen, but the movie itself has turned into a parody of itself, and ultimately it's become a macabre horror movie. And all that is left from the experience of watching this movie is the popcorn that the kids leave littering the movie theater when they walk out it's a very very powerful image it's a really powerful image it's not the kind of stuff that you imagine that these sorts of people write about right but this is this is you know you can feel the contemporary you can feel the contemporary language by the way the the subtitles in israel are very very important because um, movies are English movies, and people read the subtitles, and the subtitles represent you know, the, 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 Israeli, the Israeli touch on this movie, the way, the way we look at the movie, it's the prism with which we look at the outside world is the, is the Hebrew subtitles in the movie. It's a very important metaphor, it's an important image. But what, what he's saying is that nobody's reading the subtitles anymore there's no special prism through which to look and all we do is look at the movie and the movie is on its own it's it's got no it's not being it's not being mediated through something that has an ideological vision and the result is just basically what he's saying is that our presence in the land of israel is littering the land of israel we are we're polluting the land of israel the way kids pollute and litter a movie theater, when there's no real experience of, of watching the view that's in front of us and what we're left with is the popcorn lying on the floor. What does he say or think about the non-settler religious Zionist? Because he could say the same thing. I have to tell you that the vast majority of the religious Zionist movement um, is settler. The, settler? No. Um, the vast majority of the religious Zionist movement is settler. I say that not in terms of where they, nece- where they live necessarily, but in terms of where they are ideologically. Right? Theoretically, I can settle in Tel Aviv, I can settle in Jerusalem, I can settle in the Negev. I don't need to be over the green line in order to participate ideologically in this movement and to think of my being in the land of Israel as part of this process of reclaiming the land. There, there's a huge proportion of religious Zionists who don't live in the settlements who vote for the settler parties when they run for the Knesset. I mean, that, that's very important. I mean, this ideology, they are in some ways the clergy of, of, of a movement that, that spreads way beyond the boundaries of the settlements themselves. Otherwise, they would have no, no hope of a political majority in Israel. And they stir up a tremendous tremendous ethos. I mean, at the moment, what's happening is that they're infiltrating, it's, it's, a, it's an unfair word to use, but they are penetrating the lines of the Likud party, right? And this ideology has become part of the mainstay of the Likud manifesto as well. Um, so it goes way beyond. In my community, not Shirah but in my community, the, circle that I, the circles that I move in in Jerusalem, the religious Zionist circles that I move in Jerusalem, this is an ideology that, that resonates comfortably. Certainly in Tel Aviv, in Bnei Brak, in, in uh, Petah Tikva, Ranana, Haifa, certainly, this, this, is the, this is the thinking that is, that is very common there. Yes? I'm trying to differentiate between Gusha meaning the place. Yes. And the movement. Gusha meaning the place. There's no such place as Gush Emunim. There's Gush Etzion, there's Gush Katif. There are different places. The word Gush is used to to, to describe settlement blocks. But Gush Emunim is not a place. Gush Emunim is a movement. There's Gush Etzion, which is the Etzion block. There was Gush Katif, which was the Katif block, which was the the Israeli settlement in Gaza. Um, So the word Gush is used by Gush Emunim to describe clusters of settlements movements you about, do they to Munim? I think that Gushemunim is without a doubt the dominating voice in the religious Zionist camps. Um, to, the, to the scale of 90 plus percent of religious Zionists in Israel align themselves um, clearly with Gushemunim. Are they, a um, party? they are several political parties. Um, there, are, there are different nuances. I mean, this is part of the crisis that, 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 the, that the religious Zionist movement is dealing with at the moment, particularly in the wake of the disengagement, is that there's been an internal fracture, and they're broken up into different parties. How to the that's an interesting question. That's part, of the, that's part of the internal split. Part of the internal split is because this movement is feeling so disillusioned with the way that Israeli society has gone, um, <clears throat> there is a se- there is a section within it. It's very very big. That are, they're now calling themselves Khardal. Now that's a little play on words because Khaldal is a word in Hebrew. It means mustard, right? <laughs> khardal means mustard. But, but Israel is full of anacronyms, right? And Khardal stands for Charedi Leumi, right? Charedi Leumi, um, and they are they call themselves the National Ultra Orthodox. And basically, what they are saying is that, because of their disillusionment with the um, with secular Israel, they're trying to very, very deeply intensify their own their own sense of religious commitment, and they are they are raising the standards of the religious camp the religious Zionist camp to uh, align them with the standards of the Haredi world while at the same time holding very passionately onto a, an ethos of religious Zionism that is rooted in the sanctity of the land of Israel. However, it's very, very, very important to recognize, and this is the thing that I think most people miss, that they... How much time have I got? I'll stop whenever you tell me to. Five more minutes? That they feel deeply disillusioned with Israeli society that has given up on its commitment to ideology. They feel deeply disillusioned with Israeli society that has stopped being Zionist. Their problem with secular Israeli society is not that it's secular. They, they made a historical decision to buy in to what secular Israeli society was doing when it embraced the idea of establishing a secular, a secular Israel, uh, Zionist state. But when the culture of that state in their view Became degenerated, then then they found themselves on their own. They found themselves on their own. I was gonna I was gonna read a little bit more. I, there's one theme which is a very important theme. I I, I I won't read too much, but the the theme is that there's an idea in in in, in classical Jewish thinking of what's called the erev rav. Erev rav is a, is the only translation I have for it is the riffraff. Um, but what the erev rav refers to are the people who tagged on. To the Jewish people when they came out of Egypt, who didn't really belong. Um, it's a midrash that there was there was a whole bunch of people who followed the Exodus who really shouldn't have been there, and they were the erev Rav. And the Erevrav became troublemakers in the desert. They're not mentioned in the Bible. It's a it's a midrash. They were the troublemakers in the desert. And basically what happened was that at the moment when push came to shove and God said to them, Are you going to accept the Torah? the Erevrav said, Oh, to hell with us, and they turned their back on it and they left and never and never participated in the giving of the Torah on Sinai. And the question that is starting to surface in and this is really hot off the press, this is recent internet stuff. Is it, are, are the secular Jews in Israel today turning into an Erev Rav? Have they given up? And if their purpose, ideological purpose, is meaningless and their cultural level is so low, then perhaps they are the Erev Rav. And if they are the Erev Rav, then we should shake them off. right? Then we should shake them off. Right? Then we should shake them off. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'll say this just in a nutshell. If we can engage with these people and reconstruct their faith in the secular Israelis and show them that the secular Israelis have a cultural vision that is not just hedonistic, but, for example, their motivations to live in peace are motivated and are rooted in something deep, and in something significant. If we can demonstrate to them, and I think this can be done, that cont- and this, there's a shift taking place in contemporary Israeli culture, if we can demonstrate to them that contemporary Israeli culture is turning back to its Judaism, not becoming sec- not becoming religious, that's not what they're looking for. A contrary to popular opinion, these people don't want everybody to be a settler, and they don't want everybody to live in a state that is ruled by halakha, by Jewish law. They are looking for A secular partner in Israeli society with an ideological mission and with a sense of its own Jewishness. If we can demonstrate to them that Israeli society, they don't see what's going on in Tel Aviv today. They don't see what's going on in different places in Israeli society. They don't listen to contemporary secular Israeli music, which is confronting its Jewish roots and its Jewish heritage in fascinating ways and reinterpreting it and going back to the texts and bringing them into contemporary literature and thinking sometimes in very radical, very secular, very um, um, atheistic terms about what it means to be Jewish in the land of Israel. If they can get a sense of the depth of what is going on in secular Israeli culture, we can try and reconstitute their faith in the idea of Zionism. Because what is happening at the moment, particularly since the disengagement, is that they are completely losing their faith in Israel's sense of its own purpose. Now, the difficult thing, just one sentence to finish off, the difficult thing is that I think that when you look at the Israeli governments of the last 10 years or so, I think they're absolutely right. Don't put that on iTunes. I think they're absolutely right. Israeli politics is down the tube. But when you look at Israeli society in the last 10, 15 years, I think they are absolutely wrong. Israeli society, in my humble opinion, as, a, as a, an observer, a bystander, looking at what is going on, Israeli society is going through a remarkable cultural renaissance. Israel has become a fascinating place to be. Theatre, literature, art, cinema... The, the productivity, the creativity that is coming out of Israel's secular society today, which is intensely Jewish, the return to Jewish learning in secular Bate Midrash, is absolutely overwhelming to observe. If you look from the high culture of the intellectuals to the pop culture, in Israeli society today, it is absolutely overwhelming, the depth of the re-engagement with ideas, the quest for purpose. This younger generation of hippies on the hilltops has a parallel younger generation which is no longer content to take drugs in the, in the, in the, in, in the, in the Tel Aviv night bars. There is something else going on. And I believe that if we can demonstrate to each one of these sides that what they are looking for is not to think the same as each other, but that they are genuinely interested in each other's differences, but that they're looking for ideological partners who are trying to accomplish something in their lives and who are not just trying to be somewhere else and who are frustrated and annoyed that they're stranded in the Middle East when they'd basically like to be on the west coast of the United States. I think that if we can demonstrate that these people are where they want to be and are living compelling and creative and exciting Jewish lives, I think that if we can demonstrate that we can reconstruct some of the faith what is so difficult to overcome and i don 't have a solution for this is the sense that the Israeli government is just not thinking in these terms the Israeli government is not talking in these terms and what what one of the things that the work that i 'm interested in and i 'm trying to do is to create a discourse inside Israeli society that we can then bring to politicians because politicians are interested in populations because israel is is democratic, and if populations are resonating with certain types of messages, then politicians will use them perhaps cynically but but that that is a beginning of something that 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 I think can grow and, be, and can become meaningful so bottom line. What I'm saying is that I think that Gusha is an ideological movement that has gone through um, an ideological metamorphosis. It's moved from being this very open-ended um, movement that's desperately desirous to participate in something that's wonderful on an international world scale to a movement that is very, very narrow, militant, frustrated and angry. And what I'm saying is that rather than seeing them as a group of people that have become progressively more and more fundamentalist, we should see them as a group of people that have become progressively more and more disappointed with the world around them. And in my humble opinion, they are disappointed with justification. And that the challenge is to reinvigorate Israel and their view of Israel Not with the assumption that there's nothing we can do to talk to these people because they're not interested in being part of what the rest of Israeli society is doing, but with the assumption that they are desperate to re-engage with the exciting and the interesting things that can happen in Israeli society, even if those things fundamentally contradict their own cultural, religious, and ideological convictions. They're still open-minded. They are waiting for partners they're looking for partners who are going to believe in something, who are going to be ideologically charged, who are going to have commitment to something. And I'm an optimist, and I see the foundations of this in the current trends in Israeli culture. And if we can create a sense of the value of each other, I think we can. There is, there is definitely potential to look even at the most hardcore in the Gushamuni movement and to build on their universal sense of the value of the other as other and to think of them as as a platform for something that can be very constructive, for moving things forward rather than thinking of them as the ultimate obstacle who prevent us all the time from making any kind of progress. So we just need to learn how to read their text with a little bit of nuance. and and we can see more. Unfortunately, these websites are not accessible in English. But they're phenomenal. They're fascinating. The discourse that goes on in them is tremendous. This is just uh, this is just stuff that I picked up last week, uh, two weeks ago. But um, I'm sure if I was to do this lecture again in, in, in three or four months, I could bring completely different material, and we'd be able to see the the dynamics of what's going on, the poetry, the music, the stuff that they're posting on their Facebooks. I mean, it's really it's really fascinating to see. Um, so don't be despondent about these people. That's basically that's basically my message. I I think the, the potential that they have for being a positive force is absolutely striking. So I'm a big believer in what we can do with them. Yes? My question is, how do we follow these? Is there some English... Well, audible? one of the things that I'm doing is following this stuff, um, and there's a lot of people who are monitoring and following it. It, it. That's the nature of the of the beast and the internet that material is generated so fast that you don't sit down and translate it. Um, it doesn't get published; it gets posted, and it's stuck there, and it's on a website, and you can find it years later. But it's nobody you know. It's not a text that anybody is going to translate. But we're monitoring this stuff um, okay, you and, and you translating were it. Yeah. Having you have some a group or something that you're working with? Yeah. I was I did talk about it a little bit, but basically what we're doing is, is, is trying to bring these leaders from Emunim into discourse with people in the secular left in Israel, um, and we're capitalizing on what we see as positive in each, of their, in each of their world views to create a constructive discourse in which each of them is, is, is articulating a vision of peace. Um, and and that's that's the work um, that's the work that I was referring to. I've described it in a little bit more detail in other in other context in other sessions. So no, there's no website. But if if you know, um, I can tell you a little bit more about yeah, it and it send you more materials it. about it. Yes, with pleasure. If you were able to engage the settlers Wrong. So you, so one of the most exciting things that has happened in the discourse that I have um, been facilitating is that people are saying um, we believe that the essence to peace, and you heard it here is, is the unity of the Jewish people um, and, and their dream for a state of Israel above and beyond the dream of settling the biblical land of Israel was a unity amongst the Jewish people this was the thing, unity not meaning sameness And in our discourse, some of the people who I've been quoting from here are saying in return for unity within the Jewish people, land compromise is a no brainer. The idea well, no brainer is maybe a slightly optimistic overstatement, but it's something that we will we will be prepared to do. The move and the assumption, by the way, I think it's totally flawed just in terms of international politics, is totally flawed. But we'll give land to the Palestinians and they'll live with us in peace. I, I, don't, I don't see that working in any simple way. Maybe there's stuff that can be done there. But, but that is not of any – that's not the path to peace. The Jewish people will never be able to make peace with, with the Palestinians until the Jewish people makes peace with itself, because that's the essence of world peace. That's the ideology that's here. But for internal cohesion within the Jewish people, you tell me that if I move out of, of this area of settlement, we you will you will treat me with solidarity. They're very skeptical about it because they don't believe the liberal left in Israel that they would really mean that. But if so absolutely land compromise is, is for that land compromise is absolutely possible so what we what we need to learn to do is to is to is to get results by 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 coming at things from different from different motivations we need to understand where they're coming from in order to get to a place like that so i've heard things like that in our meetings i've heard things like that um, and people who have been involved in our process have subsequently published things like that so it's not something that has that is that has been kept under wraps. This, this is, this is, this is a known position that Israel's left pays absolutely no attention to, because the, because reaching this kind of solidarity with them is is a real challenge. Um, I think their hand is outstretched, and and the challenge is: Are we prepared to take it? Are we prepared to take it? Yeah. I'm not good on statistics. I'm not, go- I'm not good on statistics, but, but I'll tell you that th- what it means to be secular in Israel is a very, very, very complicated thing. Um, because there are, there are plenty of people in Israel who do not keep Shabbat, and who do not observe any of the mitzvot, and who go to the beach on Yom Kippur, and who still think of themselves as believers, and who still believe, uh, and you know, my father was a big rabbi, and, and my grandfather was a famous rabbi, and this kind of stuff. It's very common in Israel. Um, the absolute kind of secularism that you can encounter in Europe um, is quite uncommon in in Israel um, on the one hand on the other hand there are plenty of people in Israeli society who are partially um, um, who, who participate in ritual in all sorts of, of, of partial ways right and on the other hand there are plenty of secular people who really think of themselves as secular the numbers are staggering um, who engage in Talmud study and who participate in Jewish intellectual life as their way of being Jewish even though they have no interest whatsoever in being secular. And there are lots of people in Israel trying to capitalize on this to build a reform movement as a conservative movement. I hope they're not successful because I don't think that reform and conservative works in the Middle East environment. Um, They need to tweak it and rethink it. And I have one particular friend who I think is rethinking it in the right way. Um, and she's talking about building conservative Judaism in Israel, but not modeled on, on American conservative Judaism. It's an interesting, interesting process. So how we delineate those boundaries is not clear. I'll say one, one caveat to that, which is that the Russian immigrants are changing the demography massively. There's 1.2 million Russian immigrants, many of whom are not Jewish um, and don't want to think of themselves as Jewish. Um, they're not Jewish. They're not born Jewish. They don't want to think of themselves as Jewish. They don't want to become Jewish. Um, they have a, one Jewish grandparents and are therefore entitled to come on Aliyah, um, but, but they're not, they don't want to be Jewish. And, and, and they create a society in which many of the Russians um, are, are really secular. Um, there's also a lot of them who are becoming religious. I mean, it's just not clear where, where that community is going to go. I'm not a demographer. I'm not a statistician. Um, but, but that is is definitely shaking things up and the question of what's gonna happen demographically to the Russian Aliyah is a huge, huge, huge open ended question at this stage. Yeah. Yeah, we're out of time. Thank you very, very much. Bokil Tov.